Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I could get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Shh. Quiet, please. Hello, diggers, and welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. With me today is, yes, the Rock and Roll Librarian herself. Shelly Sorensen. How you doing, Shelly? I'm good. How are you? Oh, man, I am good. Good to be back. Uh, we have been off for uh, several weeks. In fact, most of uh, most of August, everybody uh, went to the, uh, the four winds. And I think even yourself, you dropped somebody off at college, didn't you? I did. I dropped my second son off at college. So emptier house, yeah, for sure. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. We had some of that. We did one of those ourselves. And, uh, you know, we were had a little vacation in Mexico prior to that. And then we went to Podcast Movement, PM17. Did you see all the reports from there that we, uh, we put out? Yes, I saw some of them. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that could all be found at Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, That's right. For those of you who uh, need to know, you know, Rock and Roll Archaeology Project dot com or rock and roll archaeology dot com. So we did a lot of that. And uh, then we went to Montana. I know. I saw your lovely photos of the bison and the sheep. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, it was amazing. Uh, bald eagles. Uh, the, I mean, it was, you know, that that right out of the West type of adventure uh, trip. So so we had a good time. So but good, what, good. we're back. Uh, we, we've only been back for a couple of days. Uh, and that means the whole team. You are first up. You are the very first show of the I think I'm going to call it the 2017-2018 season oh, okay the end of the summer <laughs> yeah yeah the beginning of real yeah. life kind of thing so let's get into it yeah. uh, what do you got for us today well I, I read a book by Michael Nesmith called Infinite Tuesday an autobiographical riff which just came out this year I know you already know, but some people may be scratching their heads. I think some are. And uh, thinking, Who, who's Michael Nesmith? Well, he was one of the monkeys back in the late 60s. And um, this was one of the reasons I wanted to read this book is because I was the perfect demographic for the monkeys TV show. At that time, I was uh, from about, you know, 9 to 11 and so I was the perfect prepubescent girl that that appealed to. And we used to hang out with our friends and watch the show and then pretend we were in the show and decide who was whose boyfriend and stuff like that. So we were we were perfect. I was very well situated to appreciate the monkeys. Uh, yeah, I, I remember them. I You know, it's funny. I, I don't remember them so much as a rock band. I mean, you know, of course, they were put together to kind of capitalize on the success of the Beatles uh, and, uh, you know, kind of uh, trying to find the archetypes of the Fab Four yeah. uh, for an American TV audience. But to me, they reminded me of like, it was just a live action banana splits. You know, it was, uh, it was kind of goofy and um, it was fun, mindless uh, humor. And, uh, you know, they then played a song or two. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that over time, you know, the, some of those songs were pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah, they actually were. You know, I've, I've been listening to a bunch of his songs and the Monkey songs um, while I was reading the book. And, you know, actually, some of them 
are real, really good. I mean, they're catchy. Of course, they were written by some of the great songwriters of the time. Well, especially the first two albums. The yeah. first two albums, uh, I think it was uh, kind of put together with, uh, uh, first of all, uh, just to create a little synergy. Hey, a uh, little preview for everybody. I did get a chance to sit down and interview Hal Blaine a couple of weeks ago. We'll be putting some things out for that here soon. Uh, Hal, uh, the most recorded man in history was uh, one of the drummers for The Wrecking Crew. And The Wrecking Crew is the band that really performed all of the uh, instrumentation for The Monkees. And then the other side of the coin was the Brill Building writers that I believe Don Kirshner put together That's right. to write the songs for The Monkees, right? Right, and Goffin and um, uh, Carol King, Carol and, King so, yeah, are, yeah. are credited on yeah. many of the Monkees songs. Neil Diamond, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, as well. Daydream and, Believer, uh, I and think. And others, yeah. Of course, that was all secret uh, at the time. And uh, and I, I know that the, the Monkees themselves uh, weren't real happy about that. But I guess we'll get into that in a second. So, yes. hey, everybody, let's start off with the theme song for The Monkees. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. We're just trying to be friendly. Come and watch us sing and play. We're the Oh, great. Now that's going to be stuck in my head for the next day or two. It's not the worst thing to be stuck in your head. No, no, but yes, catchy hooks. Yeah, I don't know whether to love you or hate you at this point, but anyway. <laughs> Brings uh, me back. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's get into to Mike's interesting uh, story. I know a little bit about uh, about him, both uh, before the monkeys and uh, and after the monkeys. But the big thing that I, I always kind of knew is that his mother created uh, liquid paper. That's and, right. And for those of you too young to remember, that was like whiteout. Okay. <laughs> so so uh, back when you had a manual typewriters right. and you needed to make a correction, you would use this little bottle of white paint that would dry quickly uh erase uh, your mistake and retype over it right yeah wow. used but, it many a time yeah yeah so yeah as a librarian uh, yeah. i bet that was like a big lifesaver for you <laughs> so uh tell everybody about uh the uh early life of mike nesmith yes he was uh well he was born in texas uh, grew up mostly in dallas and um his mom and uh, not only invented liquid paper, but she was a Christian scientist, and she was a single mother who raised him. She, you know, they were very close, and when he was a teenager, she did invent liquid paper. One of the the reasons, I mean, it was a great story of necessity being the mother of invention because right. she was a secretary and during the day and she was a graphic artist at night. So when she was doing her artwork, she kind of kind of occurred to her that, um, oh, when she made a mistake, 
you know, making art, she could just paint it out. And why couldn't she do this with um, letters on a page? So, so she invented liquid paper. Um, that wasn't till later in his life. So they, you know, grew up. She worked all the time, and and he spent a lot of time with his uncle and aunt. Um, yeah, she she got really wealthy from yeah. from that. But yeah. before that, I guess they had a, a kind of a, a Spartan a sparse, type yeah, of yeah. lifestyle. Yeah, right? yeah, you know what you might expect of uh-huh. a, a just a working woman, you know, making a regular paycheck. Um, yeah, single parent. And trying to, uh, you know, support dad, her son. Yeah, his dad uh, took off, right? Right. And, um, you know, she went on to be a real um, kind of cheerleader, not just a cheerleader, but a proponent in a very a very kind of concrete way for women uh, in the workplace because mm. she went on to start foundations related. One of those related. pioneering feminists. Yeah, she right. really was. And he, you know, incorporated that. Um, it didn't always probably um, translate into his relationships with women, which didn't we'll get you know, to that sound later like they were that great. The but um, right. yeah, and so he, you know, he grew up in Texas. He does say something, uh, talk about something kind of interesting, I think, which is that his uncle, who he spent a lot of time with, his uncle Chick, you know, was had a real pronounced Texas drawl, and he used to swear, you know, like go on these kind of real creative swearing binges. Oh. And Mike realized that his swearing had this kind of cadence of rhythm. He was a swearing savant. Yes. <laughs> and he, when he went to hear Bo Diddley later, and Mike Nesmith really loved Bo Diddley and, and the rhythm that happened in the Bo Diddley music, he realized that somehow... The swearing of his father was related to the rhythm uncle, of Bo uncle, Diddley. Swearing of his uncle. Isn't that interesting? Oh yeah, his uncle. Yeah. So um, I thought that was really pretty cool. You know, finding the the kind of rhythm in in just human speech. Right. Yeah. And played into the uh, simple rhythms of uh, of just music. Yeah. 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 Right, yeah Bo right. Diddley especially. Right. Right. Yeah. I could see that. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's that was kind of his introduction to music and wanting to be a musician of some form. Right, right. And you know, he he went to high school. Actually, he he was quite a um kind of outside the box kind of guy even in high school where basically he he did he wasn't even enrolled in high school. He just went and he just went to the classes that he wanted to go to and um you know, knew that he wasn't going to earn his diploma, but um, you know, went to art classes. He was in the school play. You know, he liked to act even then. But when he got out of high school, when he left high school, he joined the Air Force and um, quickly realized that oh, neither like the Air, yeah, neither the Air Force or him, he were benefiting from that alliance. Oh, so he bad experiment. He left. Yeah, he left pretty early. And he, you know, when he went to community college after that, he got a guitar and realized, well, he was. A, you know, he liked to write poetry. He could turn those into songs. He had this um, kind of template of Bob Dylan and country music players, you know, that he could he could go to coffee houses and, and sing songs and play music. And and that was fun and, you know, not, not particularly um, avant-garde or pushing the edge of the envelope, but something, you know, he was doing, playing music and, mm-hmm. um, you know, enjoying it. 
And then his uh, girlfriend got pregnant and they decided to leave Houston and, um, and move to California because that was where all the fun was happening. Oh, yeah. The music was being recorded. Yeah, a lot, a yeah. lot of people did that. Uh, what, so what year is this? This is uh, hmm. 64, 65, yeah, something, something like that. Like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Early early sixties, he's not he's not big on put throwing dates into the book, but yeah. um, <laughs> it is really an autobiographical riff. So one you know? day he loaded up the station wagon and headed west. Yep. So he took his wife and they had a a little boy after they got to Los Angeles, who they named Christian. Oh, by wow. the way, That's yes, very nice. After me, I yes. love it. Yes, and he uh, started playing at the Troubadour in Hollywood. Ah, good old Troubadour. And yeah, and he actually kind of, um, you know, sang folk songs and he, for depending on who the audience was, he could intensify his Texas twang. He also um, became an MC at the Troubadour on the, what do they call it? The Hootenanny or something like that, where they had people come in to the Troubadour and play. And um, let's see. And so when he, you know, at some point he went back to Texas to do, you know, like a short song, you know, kind of tour of his, his folk singing abilities. And he realized that when he was there, all these girls were going crazy over him. And he realized that they thought he was one of the Beatles. Isn't that funny? And he was so like astounded, like what's going on? Like he went into a supermarket and some girls started screaming when she saw him. And when he played one of his original songs called Pretty Little Princess, which was later recorded by Frankie Lane, you know, the girls would just go crazy. So anyway, that that was his first, um, you know, kind of experience with celebrity craziness. Okay, well, let's yeah. play a little of Pretty Little Princess. Okay. Fare you well, my pretty little princess, I must go and follow my heart with the morning wind, I shall depart and be away. Fare you well. But before I go, my dainty little maiden, I will fashion you a sunrise that will prove my love is real, even though I'm gone. Fare you well, for my kind of love is a special kind of tenderness. That, that was interesting. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> wow. I wouldn't think he was George Harrison if he sang that song, personally. Uh, but, I certainly know. wouldn't make that mistake. Yeah. Um, but I... You know, I maybe you know, like all things, uh, you know, some of those screaming girls—they didn't even listen to anything, no. even if there was actual Beatles in the room. So, That's right. so anyway, so his first taste of uh, some sort of uh, of uh, celebrity there uh, with uh, with a song like that. So, right, all right. right. So get us get us to Hollywood. Get us to the monkeys. Right. Well, he went back to um, Hollywood and realized his manager had screwed him out of his money for that tour, but he had. Been writing songs, you know. He went. He went <laughs> that into that story's been told a million yeah, times. Right? He went into a kind of a 
depression and but he was still writing songs and he went back to the troubadour to play them and they really responded to his own songs that he had been writing instead of you know covering other people's mm-hmm. and one uh, two of the ones that I really like and they went on to do things for other people and also be and including the monkeys the the first one was different drum which um you know he he did but he, Linda Ronstadt and the oh, Stone Ponies right, right. also covered. Mm-hmm. And the other one was Papa Jean's Blues. And he found that the, you know, like I said, the audience really responded to him. And I think that's the first time he realized that, oh, I have a songwriting gift and that's how I communicate with the audience and that's what really touches them. Oh, okay. So I love his um, rendition of Different Drum, but, you know, of course, Linda Ronstadt's is amazing as well so can we play them both oh i don't know you want to make my life complicated huh (laughs) no of course we uh we can play a little bit of different drum My doubt you can't see the forest for the trees. Don't get, don't give me, don't give me long. Goodbye, I'm leaving. You know, if you get kind and grieving, we'll both live a lot longer if you live without me. Okay, so that's two songs that uh, Mike writes uh, that were recorded uh, various times by various different people. A different drama, definitely. Everybody knows that from yes. Stone Ponies and Linda Ronstadt. I think they were they were also done on the show, and uh, the show, of course, being the Monkees. So, yes. how the hell does this guy, who appears to be, you know, a burgeoning uh, songwriter in the folk rock, country inspired world, end up? On a monkey show. Well, he was, you know, in the at the Troubadour, and somebody named Randy Sparks, who was with the new Christy Minstrels, oh yeah, um, offered him a publishing deal on the spot for six hundred dollars. And since he had a little family to to support, he had to take that deal. And then that was Randy Sparks was the one who told Mike about the casting call for the monkeys. They had put out a casting call, the producers, and had a bunch of people come in to read for it and appear on air. And um, 
So he went in and for some reason, you know, he went in on his motorcycle with his wool hat on and the producers remembered him from the screen test and called him back. Oh. I don't know. It's something they saw in him that they really liked and he was surprised. I know what they saw in him. A green beanie. A green beanie. That's right. They needed the green <laughs> beanie to round out oh, the really? color cord. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, he, of course he took the job because he had a family to support and he thought, oh, this would be fun because I've always wanted to be in a band. And, you know, he really thought he was being hired to be a musician in a band Mm -hmm. and realized very soon that he wasn't and that this was, he was really basically being hired as an actor playing somebody in a band. Yeah. Yeah. Not, Um, not even a musician. Right. Yeah. They, they and just, he, uh, you know, he, it. he was disappointed because he wanted to grow as a musician. He wanted to contribute, but he couldn't understand how, you know, what his contribution could possibly be because. The- I, I think that was across the board. I think all the guys were a little disappointed right. when they found out that uh, really they, uh, they weren't going to be playing the songs uh, like they thought their contemporaries were doing. Right. They were just hired to be faces and, um, you know, they would add the vocals uh, to it, um, but uh, but that was about it. Yeah, apparently I, I was reading a little bit on the side that that Mickey uh, Dolan's really you know could have uh, you know felt like well that's okay I don't mind doing this. This is a show. If well, they just yeah, want my it, voice on it, I'll do that. But uh, well, Mickey also grew up in the theater, so yeah. he maybe understood the and entertainment he'd already been aspects. on a TV show. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it, Mike talks about it as being kind of interesting how they brought these four people together that you know, all had some connection with music, but weren't not at all in the same arenas. You know, like Peter was a folk singer with a banjo and Mike was a songwriter, you know, with a guitar. uh, Davey was a a Broadway, a child Broadway star Mm -hmm. and was had was currently an Oliver. And Mickey had been on a TV show. I don't remember which one it was. So he didn't quite understand how they were going to fit together. He thought they were going to fit together as a band of musicians and he realized they were going to just be a band of actors and and that was okay and he kind of got into it and he realized well this is what I I have and I'm you know getting paid and started making a lot of money and and you know so kind of taking the good with the bad there right, for him right right he was still writing music you know he he had written a lot of songs before he started at at the monkeys uh, TV show and screen gems bought his songs so they could be used in the show so for example well, you know like, Papa Jean's blues yeah. was one that was yeah. on the very first record mm-hmm. And that's a really good one. I mean, that's got a lot of country influences, as you can tell when you hear it. I think there's even some uh, pedal steel guitar on it. And, um, you know, it works. Uh, Yeah. 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 So they're in the monkeys for i think the show lasts is it three seasons is uh, that just right? two. Oh, just, just two, two. Seasons. i know it seemed like forever to me as a young girl 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, things changed very quickly back then, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> if you, well, I mean, think about it. Um, they, you know, they're capitalizing on the Fab Four type of Beatles, and uh, uh, the show I think um, uh, is starts in '66. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, by 68, we, we're in a totally different paradigm when it comes to uh, the cultural desires of uh, of the youth. And it's not so much the, um, you know, the innocent uh, type of bubblegum. Uh, bubble uh, yeah. It's uh, it's more, uh, you know, the music's gotten more harder. The culture's gotten harder. You right. know, Vietnam's uh, high on the, the news uh, every day and uh, protests the civil rights uh you know in 68 of course you know the assassinations of martin luther king and uh robert kennedy um uh so i can see where um yeah the uh monkeys probably just didn't fit into uh the uh the mainstay of one of the only three channels that you could uh, watch uh, back in the day right in fact he talks about how the trend in music was moving towards sophistication with the beatles and dylan mm-hmm. but the tv show Seem to be moving in the opposite direction. So it's going stupider. back towards <laughs> simplicity, like you said, and yeah, kind of, um, yeah. you know, more, more thinly layered. He, um, you know, he thought the... Uh, music wasn't, uh, you know, up to the bar that obviously uh, the rest of the people that were really at the forefront of music in those days you know, had set the bar real high and the, and the monkey's music was just not, not taking them there. And he said they were, you know, really vilified. I mean, even to this very day by people in his own generation, he gets a lot of shit about being in the monkeys because people, musicians found out, you know, they didn't write, they didn't play their own music on the album. And though they did play on some of it and they didn't write most of their own music. And so they were kind of relegated to this other you know, level the, the Milli Vanilli category right, uh, when right. we get to it. But now, but at the same time, wasn't that part of you know the demise of uh, of them because they started making demands uh, of of playing more and their songs being used? Uh, I, I I think the first two albums are all or pretty much uh, well, it's all it's all recorded by the Wrecking Crew, and uh, you know these highly professional musicians. Right. And uh, most of the songs are, are written like we talked about earlier with, uh, you know, this Brill building, building Tin Pan Alley songwriters, right. you know, these pros. That, Apparently uh, there was some, a lot of uh, struggle going on behind the scenes, too, because the uh, uh, Boyce and Hart were pitted against Kirshner, Don Kirshner at the Brill uh, boy, building. Well, Boyce and Hart, the original uh, producers of the Monkees, right? Um, no, they were... Just songwriters, boys and the, the producers of the TV show were Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider. But Boyce and Hart were a songwriting team that wrote a lot of the Monkees songs and also Don Kirshner's writing crew at the Brill Building. And there was some kind of competition between oh, them. 
him. Mm-hmm. And um, that was disturbing to Mike because he just felt like, you know, the music was just parceled out and, you know, sold to the highest bidder. And, yeah. you know, wow, this is TV. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he really, you know, he wanted to focus groups, you know, uh, he just felt like it was looking like it was a uh, battlefield, yes. yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was told, you know, he could have some input. But when he did his song demos, they were rejected by Kirshner because, you know, and he he says this is true. The critique was that they weren't pop songs. And it's true. He didn't know how to write pop songs. He just re- knew how to write a song, you know, that he liked. And that was not on his, you know, in his resume, writing mm. a pop song. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he wrote kind of more country, t- you know, fused stuff. And, well, you know, he they does didn't come from Texas. So, yeah, and they yeah. didn't have that hook, you mm-hmm. know, that a pop song would have. So, you know. It was true, but yeah. but they did use some of his songs on the albums. Um, on that, but after after the first two albums, they do begin to kind of take more control, and at the same time, um, the monkeys begin to fall out of uh, favor, uh, even with the audience, right? That's right. They their third their first two albums were um, written uh, mostly and performed mostly by the Wrecking Crew and um, I mean performed by the Wrecking Crew written by these uh, songwriting kind of duos and groups off site and uh, the the third album which was called Headquarters they actually um, insisted on writing and playing the music on those songs Mm. so you know he was actually really really upset by the second album uh i didn't know this but did you know that the the second album they hadn't even heard it before it was released even though he wrote some of the songs on it and they participated in the recording but they weren't even like given the courtesy of listening to the album before it came out to the public Mm. so after that you know he just felt like you know, we, we just want to do our own, you know, our own album. We wanted, they had their own, they were young men, they were musicians and they had their own ideas about what might work. And that was the one they were on headquarters was the one that they performed on. So yeah. The, yeah. the song You Just May Be The One is a song that he wrote and it's kind of interesting because it's in mixed meter. So there's five, four time signature um, in an in a song that's mostly on, on a, in a four four time signature, so you know it's somewhat sophisticated, and that's that's a really cool song. You well, just may be the one. Let's play a, a little of that off of 1967's Headquarters, the third album by the Monkees, and the one where they began to wrest control of at least the music side. Let's play. You just may be the one. Someone to understand them And you just may be the one All men must have someone 
Yeah, definitely uh, much more sophisticated than uh, what they had been doing. Mike Nesmith, to me, was definitely the third vocalist of uh, of the group. Um, uh, to me, Mickey Dolan's really had a, a fine uh, voice. Uh, he has a good rock and roll. Oh, he does. Yeah, style. yeah. I, I, yeah. I always felt that he he kind of had the best voice, and they, and that's kind of why he kind of sings most of the best songs when you when you get right down to it yeah uh you know david jones uh you know had a nice sweet uh poppy uh voice yeah that never uh, appealed to me even when no. i was 10 no no you know, no truly no. i that was like as yeah. so uninteresting yeah. to me i was definitely yeah. more for the country and the rock yeah but that's what he was there for yeah. but uh, all right so headquarters i think um so we're getting to the end of the monkeys uh here and and i think they do a film they do they they get from tv onto a, a movie right they did yeah you know he uh mike nesmith had the great fortune i think to you know being a celebrity uh to meet people that people other people don't normally get to meet and two of them well, are, you know you hang in those circles and uh you know that's, that's right you, you have know. cool you know a nice place yeah, to Hollywood's, hang out you're, and, yeah you're in the hollywood uh world and yeah. you get which, invited to the cool parties yeah which he calls his wife and himself which were both from who were both from texas they were cut above the beverly hillbillies because they weren't real <laughs> yeah, sophisticated uh, but they yeah, got this yeah. you know fancy schmancy house in the holiday hollywood hills and stuff oh yeah Mm-hmm. So, um, so he he met Peter Bogdanovich and oh. Jack Nicholson. Okay, and Jack, um, he actually they became very friendly, and he thought Jack was extremely cool, which I'm sure he was. Jack is Nicholson extremely cool, and um, yes. it was before Jack Nicholson was famous as an actor, actually. And he he produced this movie that they were in, which Mike calls the assisted suicide of the monkeys. <laughs> the, the, the guys in the monkeys, you know, really, they heard that the studio was not interested in doing a third season. So they decided to give that a little kick in the butt because they weren't. You know, any of them, I don't think, real interested in continuing on the TV show. Right. Um, but they still wanted to make music. So um, the Jack had this, oh, I don't know whose idea it was, but they made a movie called Head, and it was supposed to kind of pull the monkeys apart from the monkeys TV show apart kind of at the at the base by the roots yeah by the roots there you go I watched it um I'd probably seen it before but I watched it again last night and actually liked it you know um they talk about it how either people um hated it or what what happened in a big way was that it emblazoned them on the pop culture permanently. So, you know, it became kind of a counterculture movie. So it really did, in a way, kill the Monkees TV show, which was very mainstream, and kind of put them into a, oh, this is kind of weird and quirky, and let's get stoned and watch this movie. It's very kind of psychedelic and has all these dream sequences in it and comedy routines, and and they got Victor Mature in to play a character, which he... Oh, wow. Uh, he Big actually... Names. 
Yeah, they, they um, actually, some of the um, action takes place in Victor Mature's hair. So maybe <laughs> that's why they called the movie Head. I'm not sure. Um, Are they trying to get, I've never seen the movie. Oh, it's Are just, they it's trying funny. to get uh, like uh, drug references, psychedelic, that sort of thing? There's, there's definitely some drug references mm. and it's definitely psychedelic um, and it's got music in it. And um, I don't know, it's just a fun kind of weird romp um i think jack nicholson probably had a great time producing it Uh, i don't think it did very well no it didn't do well but it became well loved by by certain people yeah a cult classic you would say right definitely didn't do well so this this pretty much kills off the uh the it kills off the tv then, show right? um you know it's funny i looked um but then oh they that's right they continue on and they have on and off but they did continue on as a as a bit of a band right yeah, they, they actually had, tried um, to make a go of it uh i think after this right they had several albums actually after headquarters which i don't to tell you the truth, remember, I must have gotten older and gotten into different stuff. But there were uh, two other albums, I think, right before the TV show canceled. Um, and then Head, uh, which was released in 68. And um, yeah, they had they had other albums and they had other hit songs. Um, Listen to the band was a a really um, one that he really liked. And he actually what he did was he took um, some time in the studio. The studio let him have time with some session musicians to put some of his and the other band members' songs, um, you know, to record them. And then included the people that he played with, included what who he called the Nashville Cats, who later became oh. the members of Muscle Shoals, I, I believe. And... Um, he he just wanted to hear you know no, how the, his the, songs. No, the Muscle Shoals was a little bit different, but yes, there there was a group of, you know, it's it's kind of like the Wrecking Crew that nobody called them the Wrecking right, not Crew at the time. back in the sixties. Yeah. They didn't call them the Nashville Cats. They didn't really call them the Funk Brothers or the Swampers. It was these monikers showed up later to kind of identify a, a group of musicians that uh, you know were in and out of these various bands uh, and made these great recordings with all these great artists at the time you know because it was usually the same first call guys uh, for a period of time uh, in these uh, these various cities where uh, you know where geographically these things were, were occurring so but um, oh so he goes to Nashville is that right yeah, he said he calls it. Um, he characterized it as as um, falling into a tub of butter. He was so happy. <laughs> yeah. So, so isn't this when he he comes up with the the band, the first national band? Uh, no, that was a little later. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was later. So he was real happy hanging and playing with these amazing musicians. They listened to the songs he wrote and collaborated with him and and recorded them. And um, one of the yeah one of the songs was called um, "Listen to the Band," and as he says, it was alive and it was ours, and they you know really made a lot of uh, you know got really into it making that album and but then after that after head was released he was kind of mired in debt he had the irs coming after him 
Oh, um, yeah. He got depressed. Um, and he started hanging out a lot at the Palomino Club in San Fernando Valley. Um, that was like a country club. And he um, there were some great musicians playing there, like Waylon Jennings and Merle Haggard and Buck Henry. Um, oh, in the valley, right? Yeah, the in the valley, club. in mm-hmm. the San Fernando Valley. And he got uh, friendly with somebody named Red Rhodes, who was a pedal steel player. Mm-hmm. And he and Red got together with a couple other people and started this band called the First National Band. Oh, that's where the First National yeah, Band and comes from. Well, was, wait a minute. Before we get to that, let's play Listen to the Band. Oh, yes, of course. Wow, he uh, he really does have that country twang going through uh, most of uh, the songs yeah. that uh, that you know he's known for uh, here. So that that was pretty much it for him with the original monkeys because i mean even this album uh, the monkeys presents is uh, no peter torx so peter torx moved on and i and i think after this it's uh, mike nesmith's moved on to the first national and uh, any you know the monkeys that come out afterwards is just uh, mickey dolan's and um uh davy jones but right. uh, and they uh, went on tour so um yeah yeah I, I, now i know i know he's come and gone over the years and we'll talk about that in a little bit but uh but as far as a uh, an artist he's moved off of the monkeys and moves now into the palomino club of which uh he then puts the first national band together right that's right and they uh they do an album called magnetic south that's their first album oh and and a, a wonderful song off that album, which is called Joanne, which I think is lovely. And it was a, an acoustic country song with a yodel in it. And that was the first one to get airplay. He always scratched his head about that. Like, why would they, you know, put this on the radio? But maybe that's because it was good. So it, it did well in the charts. But his manager decided to have Mike tour small towns in England right after that. And um, he always wondered why. Because he could have maybe, you know, rode on that success of Joanne and taken the First National Bank a little farther. The First National Bank. <laughs> The first uh, national band. Oh my God, I'm sure a lot of people said that. <laughs> so that's uh, they. They were actually. I I did not realize this at all, but they have been credited with being among the pioneers of country rock music. Really? So yes. yeah, uh, uh, I I do know that they you know came up about the same time as Graham Parsons did. Uh, you know the Flame uh, Burrito Brothers. Right, and that was real country rock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, same sort of thing, you know, probably uh, being uh, uh, influenced by the, um, you know, that California country sound that was being uh, 
developed in uh, in Bakersfield, uh, uh, and then adding the rock influences that are are around L.A. at the time, you know, which is going to be, this is 69 and this is about ready to go big. Right. I mean, you know, because pretty soon you got the Eagles coming. And uh, so, uh, again, um, uh, it sounds like he's found the the right influences uh, out there. Yeah. He seems like he's a little bit, he was a little too, like a little ahead of almost everything he tried to do. Mm-hmm. You maybe know, a, and we'll maybe get just to a, that. Yeah, a little further ahead. You're right, yeah. You're right. Yeah, we'll get to more of that. But, you know, he established this this record label called Countryside, and it, and it was run out of the Palomino Club. And that was Electra's country division. Like, his, his idea was to have a country house band, like the house bands they had at Stax and Motown, mm-hmm. and make it a Southern California country house band so he produced a few you know bands out of there and with countryside backing but then geffen got control of countryside and didn't see any point in keeping a country arm of um of electra so he let it go but he let mike keep all the masters and try to figure out what to do with them afterwards oh, all right yeah so let's see so you want to play joanne yes from uh the album magnetic south i do all right let's hear a little of uh, joanne Her name was Joanne, and she lived in a meadow by a pond. And she touched me for a moment with a look that spoke to me of her sweet love. Yeah, that's uh, definitely got that uh, nascent country rock uh, influence going on. There. Oh yeah. So um, it's beautiful. Uh, but I guess they just had one album, right? Um, you know, I think they had more than one, or they they started a band called the Second National Band, but that oh. didn't work either. <laughs> you know, RCA wanted hit records, and um, you know, yeah. in the meantime, his personal life is falling apart he he meets uh, he starts having an affair with a friend's wife and you know he's really looking for a moral kind of moral grounding for his life I mm. think that you know eventually uh, left his wife and went away with this uh, another woman and married her but he always felt bad about it and he was you know got in for a while with some yogi you know real nice hippie people that came and lived with him and well, wasn't he buddies with uh, Tim Leary yeah he was buddies with Tim Leary he talks about him at the very beginning of the book he's always wants to talk philosophy with people he also became very good friends with Douglas Adams. Oh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. Yeah. Uh, Douglas the galaxy? Adams. The Galaxy. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide Whatever. to the Galaxy. Yeah. Universe, Galaxy. Yeah. They're all the same. Yeah. And, uh, I should know better. Yeah. He even, you know, what, what he settled on was actually Christian science. That was how he was raised. And he went to hear a lecturer who really kind of distilled it for him in a really useful way. So he settles on that. He talks about it a little bit in the book, but he's also 
you know, when he becomes friends with Douglas Adams, who is in no way, you know, a, no, a kind of religious uh, stuck in any kind of um, kind of organized dogma. religion. Yeah. No. They're able to have really pleasant, fun, you know, stimulating discussions. So he's not a kind of a didactic religious person. He's really interested in moral grounding, what makes the world go round, the universe, how it all interrelates. Um, and, you know, this this actually worked out well when his mother actually passed away when she was in her late 50s. And oh, young. About a, about a year after she sold her paper, liquid paper company to Gillette for almost $50 million. And um, after she passed away, Mike found out she had started these two foundations. She had left him a good deal of money, but also left money to these foundations that supported the work of single women, which is what she um, had always been interested in. And he realized that 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 was very important and he continued her work. So he's, you know, forged a place in the world that uses his creativity and his, you know, understanding and his compassion, you know, to kind of, you know, give back, I suppose. Um, But he also continued making music. So the next album that he did was called From a Radio Image to the Photon Wing. And one of the songs on it which was named Rio was a was a moderate hit and so the Island Records uh, agreed to promote it, and somebody asked him to do a promo clip for it. Oh, no, a production clip. Oh, this is where we're going to get into his video work, yes, right? Cause yes. Because that's a, that's a big deal. I'm it not sure a, a lot deal. of people know about this. No, I mean, I had... Again, you know, you mentioned he's always a, a, ahead of the curve, sometimes too far ahead of right. the curve. Uh, and, and I think this is sort of another um, uh, uh, example of, of where he's just gosh just a little bit ahead but it leads to like something giant right it does um he he want, he basically was asked to do this a clip which uh, many art artists had done but they were all just like stand standing in, in front, front yeah, yeah the, the old band of, here's the band right yeah, yeah, sing yeah. your song mm-hmm. and he I don't know. He just said, I saw him in an interview and he said he was just connecting the dots. It's like, oh, you want me to do this? This is what's interesting to me. Mm -hmm. So he did a full story and video around the song that actually it's like a picture yeah, and book. This is like in 1977. Yes. Uh-huh. And so, you know, the, the, the video informs the music, the music informs the video. It has to be cut and edited while listening to the music. You know, this was a whole new idea. I hadn't, I really had no idea whoever thinks about like where toothpaste came from or liquid paper for that matter, or, <laughs> you know, or a music video. Right. I mean, you know, you right. don't think about Not, that. Yeah. No, this isn't just the band in front playing in front of cameras. Right, it's really it's, cute. It's, there's, this is this is the full conceptual, atmospheric, metaphorical type of, of music video that comes to prominent with MTV. Right, that's right. And he, there, when he did this video for Rio, that had never been done before. 
the yeah, music I, I, video. I, I saw it first in film school, but uh, Did yeah, you? Mm-hmm. Oh. yeah, yeah. This and Elephant Parts. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, I'm right in that right age. I'm, you know, uh, right, being in right. uh, college about 1980, 81. So, you know, so there you go. But, yeah. uh, but yeah. Uh, well, hey, let's play a little uh, unfortunately we can't show them no, the but video but you can, can find that to... onto youtube that's yes, right it's, it's right YouTube. there so let's play a little of michael nesmith's rio from 1977 i'm hearing the light from the window I'm seeing the sound of the sea My feet have gone loose from their moorings I'm feeling quite wonderfully free And I think I will travel to Rio Ah, still got that pedal steel guitar going there. That's so, right. Uh, that he picked up from the Palomino. It's got the some country influences. It's that soft rock of the late seventies uh, there now. And people are going to see this video and they're going to go, "Well, that's not that big a deal." But um, folks, uh, it was uh, extraordinarily ambitious for a music quote unquote video at that time. Yes, and you know the weird thing was there was no way there was no place for it. There was no way to show it to people. Like TV did not have a broadcast channel that was doing this. No, I mean, the best you had was, you know, American Bandstand, uh, you know, Soul Train. Uh, right. Uh, you know, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert or Midnight Special. And, you know, that that was not uh, their format. Yeah. And he took it, you know, to the powers that be. And there was... Uh, some you know his manager thought he should take it to this convention and show it around and people um he had this idea that it would be a half hour show like american bandstand let's just have a show where we just show music videos and programmers didn't like that so um he found uh, John Lack at Warner Brothers, who he worked with, who was real excited about it, and they decided that it had to be like a top forty radio station. Mm, that I know they where would this just is going. Be playing the music, you know, over yeah. and over again all day, <laughs> and whenever you turned the TV on, there would be something on there. Yeah. And what what did that end up being a template for? MTV. That's right. Yeah. You got wow. my MTV. <laughs> so um, he was asked if he wanted to produce that channel yeah. and uh, decided yeah. that he didn't really want to. Oh, bad decision. Yeah, but that's the way he was, you uh, know. He just, yeah. He really wanted an outlet for the thing that he wanted to make. He was interested in video and music, and he wanted to produce them, but he didn't want to be the person going, you know, actually running yeah. the station. No. It's not uh, him. Not his forte. Yeah. Not his but he eventually he pulled a bunch of these video clips into they a made short a movie, movie right? yeah. called El- Elephant Parts. Mm-hmm. I just saw him inter- being interviewed by Letterman last night on an old, you know, Letterman show. Letterman of a, a long time Trying ago. to ex- explain what this movie is. And he was even having trouble. It was because he was talking about, you know, there's these things called video stores where you can go rent videos. In, in- like that was 
like a lot of people wouldn't know what Letterman, that was. Letterman couldn't even get his head around yeah, that. Yeah, he really right. couldn't. Right. You know, people will yeah. get these, and then yeah. they have these machines at home, and I'm they stick it in. I'm coming to you from the future. <laughs> yes, I get you. Right, Exactly. Right. I mean, it was really interesting because you know i was around in the 80s you know you don't when you look back at the stuff you don't remember when all these things came on board and when they were invented you just assume oh and now that's gone you know now the music video is not interesting anymore so yeah hell they don't even play music videos on mtv anymore yeah yeah he he, i think all uh, they play is a show about 16 year old pregnant girls (laughs) anyway there are several (laughs) videos if you want to go on uh, youtube and look for you know look up elephant parts Michael Nesmith, yeah, you'll the, see uh, some of the, the other movie. videos. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That whole the whole movie isn't I I couldn't find it as one piece, but you can see all the different parts that are on there. You know, he also had a production co- a distribution company for um, videos which he bought up a whole bunch of and then he ended up uh, making a deal with PBS for a PBS like documentaries and video station, but he got screwed over by them and had to go to court. So that was a sad a sad sidebar um but one of the next things he did that was really interesting and i think a lot of people will know about this movie that he worked producing the movie repo man which came out in 1984 and was a real cult classic oh yeah he feels really good about you know the respect he got from from producing that movie yeah, uh, still yeah. still makes him feel good, and he still still makes music today, right? He does. He has a um, a company called Video Ranch. Yes, Video Ranch. In, right, um, Mike Carmel, Nesmith's where Video he Ranch, settled. Yeah. Uh huh. He got actually the first. What is it? The first patent for embedding video in a virtual reality let's see i can't i can't remember what the patent was but he got a patent for basically his work with video uh embedding video in uh, virtual reality clips which is what he does at the video ranch and i just want to say before that he produced an eight-part series called television parts which also became visionary in that he took stand-up comedy videos with the likes of Gary Shandling and Jerry Seinfeld and put them into a a full, uh, you know, a a TV series. Did you ever see any of those television parts? I don't remember. I I, I think I knew Gary Shandling came from that, Uh but uh, because that's, um, isn't that where the Gary Shandling show comes from? Yeah, the Larry Uh, Larry Larry Sanders Sanders show. show. He did that after. Yeah, and um, Seinfeld was on there and I guess uh, influenced Jay Leno also. So it was different from the comedy routines they were televising at the time because it, it specialized in stand-up comedy routines that basically they kind of uh, expanded for the TV for the TV market. And Gary Shandling did a really funny one, which was him dating Miss Maryland. So people can look that one up. Uh, Gary Shandling television parts, and um, you know it's kind of like the beginning of some some of the different comedy stuff that was going on in those days. So another example of him being kind of at the beginning at the forefront of some yeah he's constantly done that yeah so i mean what a life uh you know it's uh, a little art and little commerce wow sounds just like his mom 
Yeah. Uh, you know, inventing something from scratch, uh, and uh, and all of a sudden it becomes uh, this thing. Uh, and here he, you know, has done that pretty much his, his whole life. So, uh, yeah, probably the most interesting of the monkeys of all, all four of the guys. Uh, uh, he's done some cool things. So I'm glad you got a chance to, to read the book. I do, oh, now we have to we have to say did you like it, and are you going to recommend it? I did, and I do. I of did, course. and I, don't I think do. There's one, I don't think we've had a book where you did not recommend it. No. no. That, does You're, that make me look bad? No, that makes no. you a librarian. <laughs> you know, you pick well, the right ones. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I pick them, and then I become very close to the subject of the book while right, I'm reading right. it. You know, I just always feel very friendly toward these people after I'm done reading, and have learned so much about music in a year and a half that I've been doing this series. It's just incredible. What I can start talking to people and go, oh, did you know Booker T. Jones was married to uh, Rita Coolidge's sister? Right. And you're like, and they go, oh, how, how did you know, you know that? that? Right. Oh, because I just read, you know. Well, I think we should take a rock and roll archaeology uh, field trip down to Carmel and go knock on the door of Mike Nesmith's video ranch. <laughs> that would be cool. Introduce yourself, yeah. huh? All right. He might like it. He was always the cutest one as far as I... Did you hear that, Mike? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I can get in the door oh. that way. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's. I, I, well, let's leave the folks. We got to leave them with the biggest monkey song of all time. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. I think that works really well for Mike Nesmith. Yeah. All right, folks. Until next time, this has been the Rock and Roll Librarian, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. So we'll see you soon. Hey, uh, you working on something new? Oh, yeah. I, I really want to tell everybody that the San Francisco Public Library has just bought a new collection of vinyl. Yeah. And we are circulating record albums at three of our branches and at the main library. Wow. We'll have to get that information over to Dave Whitaker, the host of Vinyl Snob. I know. Snob. I, was, I was thinking about We're that. We're going to get you guys together here real yeah. soon. It'll be real interesting to see if people are interested in borrowing vinyl as opposed to owning it like a collector. That's what I'm interested in seeing. All right, everybody. I'm a believer. How about you? <laughs> Bye-bye. Love is only true in fairy tales And for someone else but not for me Our love was out to get me That's the way it seemed Disappointment haunted all my dreams Then I saw her face Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host... 
Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.